Saturday. This is going to be episode number seven. I want to uh, welcome everybody to Unknown Philosophers Live this morning, or if you're in Europe, it's going to be this evening, and uh, it's going to be a wonderful show. It's going to be a wonderful show uh, this morning uh, with me, as always, my co-host, uh, brother Cosmo Magliazzi. How are you doing this morning, my brother? Doing great, brother Briggs. Uh, it's, it's good to be here. We have a special guest today. Uh, welcome all of our brothers from around the world. Uh, I know we have a brother from, I uh, see from Brazil joining us today. Welcome brother. Uh, uh, it's always good to have and share this great uh, uh, time with, uh, with our global brothers and, not, and also our philosophers out there that uh, like to learn more about what we're, uh, what we're learning. Uh, today's uh, special guest, um, he is a very special guest. Uh, he's our uh, historian, author, Freemason. Um, he is a, uh, I believe he's also a past master of the uh, the Coronatus, which I'm also a member of. Um, uh, he's also the um, a member of some of the old, some of the uh, world's oldest research lodges. Um, I you the Quarto Coronati is the oldest, and uh, he's an, um, also a member of the uh, research lodges in California. Uh, actually, just regular lodges, excuse me. California, Florida, Missouri, Montana, Texas, Washington, and wow. of course, he's hopefully going to join Arizona soon as well. <laughs> um, I had the opportunity of, uh, of meeting Bob. Cooper in uh, in Scotland uh, last year, um, and uh, I was supposed to meet him two years ago as well, but um, didn't have a chance to. So with no further ado, uh, you know, he's going to bring us some wide wisdom today, and I'm looking forward to it. I know we're all looking forward to it. Um, Brother Bob, the floor is yours. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's such a pleasure joining us from Scotland. Uh, thank you so much, my brother. Uh, we've got a lot of people online tonight that uh, are so excited to, to see you here. The Facebook is filling up as well. And uh, let us know how you're doing. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a fine day here in Scotland, uh, nice and sunny for once, um, although it's to rain tomorrow. Um, but yes, everything's good. Everything's good. But we're, we live in very strange days. I don't know um, what it's like in other parts of the world. Uh, uh, I don't know what it's like in Arizona even, but here we're all, uh, in Scotland at least, we're still under lockdown. You can see I've got a lockdown beard, as it's called. <laughs> um, we're having a lockdown beard competition to see um, you know, before and after um, the virus to just see what happens with our, with our uh, um, beards. Um, I'm not going to win. Mine's is really nothing special compared to <laughs> some of the guys but uh, looking good um, yeah but the idea eventually is that all the freemasons that grow something like this will probably have a, a sponsored beard cut or something raise some money for charity <laughs> <laughs> so yeah all, all good but very 
very strange days, but all good here in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I'm really grateful we have this platform and uh, we can kind of just for a short time have some uh, fun with each other and, and talk philosophy and, and some important work that you've been working on. And uh, I've really enjoyed your work on Cagliostro. Uh, a brother, Lauren G, introduced me to that. I had no idea you did work on that. I'd been following your other work, which has been phenomenal. Um, but then uh, Brother Lauren, who's online tonight, uh, introduced me to that. And it, it blew my mind because I'd been following him for years. We have a special book of his in Pennsylvania uh, at Harmony, which is a little place I talk about. Um, but Cosmo, why don't we start off tonight? Do you have a, a question to uh, get us started this evening yeah, or this morning? Uh, the, the question that I always like to ask our guests is, you know, what, um, Brother Bob, are you, what, what's the new thing that you're working on right now? Any, any, any new research that... Uh, that you like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, there's the the <laughs> the, the, the problem I have. We, I, I suppose, I'm like a lot of people. What you do is you you pick up um, some some little bit of information. You find it interesting. You start working on it, and then something else very interesting comes along, and then you you dash off and have a look at that. And the problem is, it's a, you end up being a bit of a juggler where you've got all these really interesting subjects um, going on. Um, and you, you, because of that, you, you only progress a little bit on every subject a little bit at a time. So it sounds like you're doing nothing um, for a long time. And then all of a sudden, all these projects all come to, uh, come to fruition all at the, all at the same time. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a little bit of research um, into a Scottish lodge um, in Florida, which is probably virtually unknown um, uh, to many people. Uh, this, this lodge met in Pensacola um, in the early 18th century, so a long time ago. Um, a very interesting period. Um, so doing a little bit of, on that, I'm also extremely interested in uh, the free gardeners. Um, we did write a kind of preliminary inquiry um, or analysis into the free gardeners uh, coming up for 20 years ago now. Um, it's time to revisit that. Um, so I'm doing that. As well as that, I'm working on um, a Masonic Guide to Edinburgh um, here in Scotland. Um, in my opinion, um, Scotland is the most Masonic city. Uh, Edinburgh is the most Masonic city in the world. And uh, Part of the problem with that research is there is just so much yes. um, to write about the, about that city that um, you know something that was supposed to be relatively small as a as a quick guide for anybody that was visiting the city is now turning into something very substantial indeed. So all sorts of things going on, all sorts of very different very different subject, but all connected one way or the other with Freemasonry. And I'm, I'm having a great time doing all that. You know, I just love it, basically. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, Cosmo, anything else? Oh, just, uh, I'm, you know, today I'm just kind of interested in seeing some of the Cagliostro's um, uh, questions and uh, feedback from Mother Bob, because I, um, you know, being Italian, uh, I read a lot on Bruno, but um is one of those guys that he's down south, and if you're not from the mainland, you know, <laughs> you, you don't dabble into it, you know, so, but yeah. uh, I'm really interested to see, to learn more about this, this uh, what he's, um, 
what his uh, research was about. Yeah. 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 Brother uh, Bob, tell us a little bit about the book and, and how, how you got into that. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, firstly, you know, you mentioned somebody else that's extremely important. Um, Giordano Bruno, um, as we all know, was uh, probably the arch hermeticist of his age. Um, and in an odd kind of way, he was the guy that, um, I mean, uh, you know, it's fully a, a century prior to Cagliostro. Um, but in a way, he was the guy that started me in getting interested in Cagliostro because essentially what, what I realized was there were certain individuals, um, on, certainly on the European stage, that had a, an impact that was far greater um, than anyone appreciated at the time. And Giordano Bruno is one classic example, um, also an Italian, of course. Um, very interestingly, just to, to let all you guys know, um, uh, Giordano Bruno actually came to, to Britain. He came to England where he um, gave a series of lectures on Hermeticism um, at, I think it was Oxford University. I'm not going to swear to that. It may have been Cambridge. Um, now, I've got, now I've got two warring tribes of Oxfordonians and, and Cambridgers um, <laughs> all claiming that I've got it wrong. That's why I'm mentioning them both. Um, and he gave lectures there, but from a Scottish dimension, what is very interesting is that he describes um, a man by the name of Alexander Dixon um, as being um, one of his disciples. And Alexander Dixon was a Scotsman um, who had a place in the royal court um, in Scotland. And we're now learning a lot about what um, Alexander Dixon um, was doing in the Royal Court, along with two colleagues also in the Royal Court by the name of uh, William Fowler. And of course, the, the, I was going to say the famous, but perhaps um, not as famous as it should be, William Shaw. All three were um, masters um, of the art of memory, as they were described. Anyway, to cut long story short, the reason why I make, I make mention of this is that Alexander Dixon, um, a disciple of Giordano Bruno, actually wrote two books um, on Hermeticism, um, and were, which were dedicated to Bruno. And one of those um, one of those books has just been republished in modern English, um, just within the last month. So I'll try and get the the details for you, um, and anyone who's interested in that subject might like to follow up now. I'm, we're following a long line of very interesting people. Um, 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 uh, Francis Yates, um, of course, one of the, the, the early authors uh, who were uh, very interested in Bruno. But this is the latest book um, written by one of his disciples. And so maybe may worthwhile sort of um, having a look at that. I'll try and get the, the title, et cetera, and, and let you have those details. Um, um, and what struck me was that you've got these individual characters, um, Bruno in this case, um, and, and there's nearly always some kind of Scottish connection, which is what I'm nearly always um, interested in tracking down. Um, and so we have these characters, um, and when I say strutting, I mean strutting around the European stage. Um, these individuals are like, I, I liken them to peacocks. They are big, 
bright, flashy uh, characters yes. who struck through history, and you know they are they, you, you just can't miss them. They are there. They're very important. But I think you know the the sheer brightness um, of, of of the characters tends to um, mean that a lot of people gloss over what they were trying to say. And so Cagliostro, um, in this in a similar mould um, to Bruno, in the sense of his character is strutting on the European stage um, was an was an immediate attraction for me. But the real reason I became interested was that I I came across um, Cagliostro's handwritten rituals of uh, the Egyptian Egyptian Freemasonry. Um, so he, this was his ritual written in, in his hand um, in uh, French. Um, so he was obviously a very learned man. man. Um, Lord. <laughs> yeah, so the French, the French at the time was extremely flowery, not only in terms of language, but in terms of the actual handwriting. And so uh, even although I could, I, I've got a smattering of French, there was no way that I could translate um, uh, this, this, uh, this 18th century flowery French. So I had it translated by prof professionals. Um, and lo and behold, then for the first time, um, people um, like myself uh, in Britain were able to read in English um, what he claimed was a vast improvement on the existing Masonic system that was then in place in Britain. And that's where my interest began, basically, coming across some old documents and thinking, mm, I think this is important. I'll, I'll pay to have it translated. And that's where the book comes from, essentially, um, that that unknown document um, which uh, sheds a great deal of light on the way this guy um, thought about Freemasonry and about how he thought he could improve it. There you go. Boy, when you when you got your hand, because I've I've had that experience of getting my hands on something and and wait a minute, is this really what it is? Am I really like? Did you just freeze for a moment? Tell us a little bit about like that moment. Yeah, I mean, with my rudimentary French, I was able to see that it was um, a, an important document. Um, it was, I mean, the. There was no doubt that it was authentic. It was with lots of other documents of, of a similar type. Um, but this was the, I mean, it's headed up um, Egyptian masonry. Um, so, you know, it was very clear. So right away, the title, Egyptian masonry, Egyptian Freemasonry. Um, so I, I, I needed to know what it, what it said, you know, what, what was all this about? You know, I'd never heard of Egyptian Freemasonry. And of course, as it turns out, there's not really all that much um, Egyptian about it. Uh, he's making hermetic connections, so there is an Egyptian element, but it's 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 quite um, quite distant in terms of the past. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was one of those moments. We, we it, I, I describe it as uh, uh, it's akin to finding a gold nugget. You know, as you wander around the Arizona desert, you find something. You know that. Uh, you go, wow, oh yeah, this is this is unusual. This is this is not what you normally come across in the Arizona desert. In, in, yes. you know, <laughs> in the superstitions or whatever, you know. Um so yeah, it was a moment like that that yeah, uh, and it was worthwhile. And as I say, that was where the book um came from. My co author, um Pip Falks, uh, is an expert on 
um, Egyptology, um, particularly the kind of uh, the more occult or esoteric elements. Um, and so um, she was she was brought on board for that, and and she um, she co we, she was my co-author, um, and we, we we wrote a book that I think was very well received. Yeah, absolutely. Cosmo, uh, if you've got anything, or maybe we uh, hand it over to the audience, maybe we start with uh, Brother Lauren. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you guys hear me okay? Yes, how you doing this morning, Brother? Brother Lauren is here in Arizona with us. What are you, maybe about 40 minutes from us? Yeah, not too far away at all. All right, well, Lauren's a big fan of your book, uh, uh, Brother Bob, so we'll let him go ahead and ask you a couple questions here. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I first read the Masonic Magician when it when it came out, um, what a good twelve years ago or so. And there's not a whole lot about it um, online with interviews or podcasts or presentations with you involved. It's it's usually Filipino Fox. I was wondering why that is. Um, mainly because mainly because I, I I I can't sit still for terribly long. So you know that's the book written move on to the next project you know and um, it's it, it's just a it's just one of my failings where I tend I have a terrible habit of simply not following up on all sorts of things so it's there's, there's no uh, peculiar reason there's nothing odd about it it's just that as soon as that book was finished I'd moved on to something else and Pip um um, is, 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 is very easy on the eye, shall we say, instead of a, a grumpy old man like me. Um, uh, so she, she can, she's, she's really very good at doing the, the promotion side of things. So, um, so I was very happy to let her um, keep doing what she was doing. She, was, she did a great job. So no, there was nothing strange or sinister. It's just I moved on quickly to other things. Um, uh, about that time... Uh, I'd become interested in, in, in the Hammerman, which is another project that uh, is, is one of these things that inches forward um, alongside all these other projects. So, um, yeah, so, and, and then, you know, there was, it was, a, I have to say, an, an unfortunate period um, in life where I lost my late wife um, uh, very suddenly and that kind of, um, that, that kind of, the pitch for me a little bit for a while, um, obviously a, a life-changing event. And then of, <laughs> the very next thing that happens to me is that I'm walking along Boston, uh, a Boston sidewalk, after I'd uh, been to a lodge um, uh, festive board, I think you would call them, a meal, a very nice meal in a restaurant. I'm walking on the side, sidewalk in Boston, Massachusetts, when I just fell over. Now, what, what do you think when you see a Scotsman fall over um, in the middle of the street, you know? Um, I, you obviously jump to an immediate conclusion. Um, and uh, so the, the Julie picked me up, dusted me off, and I promptly fell over again. And it turns out I had uh, the main tendon um, that goes from your, from your hip to your knee had uh, ruptured and I... Um, that led me to a period of uh, five, five stays in hospital. Uh, once as a guest of the Boston General Hospital, um, uh, which was probably, um, well, all hospital stays should be forgotten, I suppose. But that kind of, that, that took me out of the game 
um, for more than a year um, because five, uh, four operations and five hospital stays. Um, it's not where you want to be when you, you're like me and you want to look at old documents and scribble and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't going to happen in a hospital bed. So there's all sorts of reasons why I kind of went quiet for a while. Um, but uh, in some ways, you know, um, this virus comes along and reignites um, people's interest in various subjects. And so that's why you've got me here um, this morning or in the evening here in Europe. So, yes. yeah, so that was a kind of potted history of the last few years of my life. Um, not, the, not the best period, um, but um, that's in the past and we're now moving on. Yep, and you're looking good. You're looking good, brother. Lauren, do you have any other questions? I guess um, to follow up with that, um, I used to correspond with her um, probably uh, five or six years ago, and she had mentioned at one point, working on a follow-up to the Masonic Magician. I was wondering if you were involved in that at all or can share more about that. Yeah, well, I know Pip also went through um, a few um, problems, um, uh, a few personal problems. We, everybody has them. Um, and I haven't been, in, to be honest, I haven't been in touch with Pip for a little while. She was, uh, she did come to Edinburgh um, a few years ago, and we had a great time, um, and I, we, we did discuss a, a kind of follow-up or a sequel to, to that book. Um, and so we've got, we've got some great ideas, and I think we'll probably get around to it. It's just the same old story. It's, what's the, which one's the priority, the one that you're working on now or the one you haven't started yet? <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the big problem, isn't it? Do you, do you deal with the one that you've got or do you start something new? And that's, so yeah, so, but that's well reminded and I, I'll get in touch with her for that very reason. So thanks, Thank, thanks for the prompt. All right, Lauren, I think we, um, you may have just uh, started a second book. That would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd all love that. <laughs> we would all love that. Any, anybody else want to jump in there and uh, have a question for uh, Brother Robert L.D. Cooper? Yeah, I can certainly tell you about other, you know a little bit of detail. Um, I mean, I yes. mentioned the free gardeners. Do you want me to tell you a little? Oh, bit that would be that? wonderful! Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, Freemasons, unfortunately, and, and this is not a criticism; it just it's the way it is. Um, Freemasons tend to be uh, rather inward-looking. They focus very much on the craft, and I mean it's a huge subject, and so I can understand uh, understand why. But Scotland's a very unusual place, um, certainly historically, and not just because of the people either, but historically for a variety of reasons. Um, now I suppose we all know or, or, or have heard of um, organisations such as the Odd Fellows, um, the Foresters. Um, to a lesser extent, uh, things like the Shepherds or the Druids, um, these kind of groups. Now, um, the difference is that these are these groups that I've just mentioned are uh, organisations. I wouldn't call them orders, but they they are figments of um, the imagination. They have been devised by people um, who have got obviously got time on their hands. I mean, the Oddfellows, for example, 
was uh, created um, in a pub in London um, near Drury Lane, I think it was, in fact. Um, they didn't want necessarily to join Freemasonry. They wanted their own organization. Um, and so they invented the Odd Fellows. And that went from strength to strength. The difference here in Scotland is that, um, and now we're talking about much earlier um, than, than the Odd Fellows or the Druids or whatever, um, the difference is that the organizations that occurred here in Scotland um, were di directly um, derived from the ordinary working man's daily life. So the Freemasons um, came into existence in Scotland and they derived directly from the daily working lives of the stonemasons of Scotland. And this is why we have the oldest uh, Masonic records in the world here, the oldest lodge records in the world here. Um, uh, the oldest one is a lodge called Aitchison's Haven, and their minute book begins on the 9th of January, 1599. Uh, unfortunately, that lodge uh, ceased to exist in 1852 or thereabouts. Um, but uh, the oldest lodge that still exists um, in the world with the oldest records are the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel Number 1, to give it its full title, um, and their minutes begin on the 31st of July, 1599, and they are continuous to the present day. So every single meeting from July 1599 to the present day are recorded in their minute books, every single meeting. And that, that kind of depth of information tells us uh, a huge amount about what was going on in these lodges before 1717, which is a, an important date, but it shouldn't be allowed to overshadow um, what was happening here in Scotland for more than 100 years before that uh, date. Now, back to, back to the free gardeners, and this is where I, I think we find Scotland is in a very unique position. Um, as well as the free masons or the stone masons or the masons, um, you also have um, the free gardeners, uh, the free fishermen, um, the free colliers, um, the hammermen, the horsemen, um, the free carters, um, and there's another I can't recall just at the moment. And all these organizations are made up of people who are actually doing these jobs during the working day, but were getting together after work in the evenings, just like these early lodges were. And the Free Gardeners is one that um, it, we know an awful lot about now. Um, and the reason I mention this is that by comparing ourselves, the, the pre-1717 Freemasons, with um, the Free Gardeners, we can begin to see some similarities. Now, the Free Gardeners are almost as old as the Freemasons um, because um, their minute books also exist. Um, the first major writing uh, takes, uh, begins in 1676, um, but there are references um, as early as 16, uh, 1640. So we can see that just about the time um, the, the Freemasons or the Stonemasons were recording things. The Free Gardeners are also recording things um, in writing. And comparing the two organizations, 
uh, gives us an insight not only into themselves, but it gives us an insight into the kind of common threads of what was happening um, here in Scotland. So here, here we have a, an interesting, uh, well, keep this brief, I don't want to sort of hog the show just on this one subject, but um, what happens is, uh, and I, I think uh, it becomes fairly clear the more you study this, that when the stonemasons of Scotland are um, getting information um, about um, the world, there really is only one book that they've got access to, and that's the yes. Bible. Yes. So um, you, you go through, you know, you, and they're, I, they're, they're either uh, reading it for themselves, although to be fair, not many of them can read and write, but they are certainly listening to it in church. Um, and all of a sudden they come across in Kings and Chronicles, um, the first stone building. And as far as they know, the first stone building in the world. Um, and, and what is that building? It's King Solomon's temple. So the attraction uh, to them is inescapable. Um, not only is the first stone building in, in the world um, uh, King Solomon's temple that people just like them had built, um, but it was also a sacred building. So it, it's, got a, a, it's sort of got a double, doubly important um, significance for the stonemasons. And before any, any of you more learned guys jump in, the Tower of Babel, which is mentioned in Genesis, um, when you read that, the Tower of Babel is actually built from brick, not stone. And so um, the stonemasons would have simply nothing to do with um, anything as common as, as bricks, you know. So the first, uh, first, uh, the first stone building is King Solomon's Temple. Now, equally, you have the free gardeners. Um, so King Solomon's Temple is what informs the stonemasons and uh, gives rise to their uh, ritual, their ceremonial. And we're, again, we're blessed here in Scotland um, by having the oldest um, lodge rituals in the world. Um, albeit dated uh, um, from the late 17th century, but all from before 1717, and very esoteric. Um, they are too, very interesting, I have to say. Anyway, back to the three gardeners. So the gardeners, and we know there is interaction between the gardeners because as the stonemasons are building these country mansions, at the same time, the gardeners are employed laying out um, the landscape gardens that surround these country mansions. And the free gardeners um, emulate the stonemasons by creating lodges. Now, again, almost inescapably, what do you think the free gardeners' rituals are based on? Well, when you read the Bible, what's the first garden um, in the world, <laughs> as far as they're concerned? Well, it's the Garden of Eden. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, and so their ritual is based on the Garden of Eden. Um, and so you can see that um, these people who are actually doing um, actual physical gardening during the day are informing um, the local lodge meetings in the evening about the, about the history and the morals and what free gardenry actually means, not only as an occupation, but also for a, a means of a spiritual or esoteric advancement. So we're, we're learning a lot about um, simply by comparing Freemasonry and free gardenery, we're learning a lot about both. 
and sometimes we don't do quite enough of that within Freemasonry. And I kind of, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not criticising. It's, I mean, it's a very, very big subject, um, but sometimes it it does it does us good to have a look at other organisations at the same time that we are busy doing our, our thing as well. So there we are. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, it makes perfect sense. Uh, what I find interesting about all that, and, and especially with all the guests we've had, you know, this is episode number seven, so we've had some incredible guests on the show. And what's interesting, um, kind of putting these pieces together um, with all you guys who are the scholars of your field, it, it seems like something happened around, you know, the end of the, the 1500s. There was an edict and the church was coming after England and the queen. And it seems like all these groups got alerted to that. And that's what really kind of sparked them to start working together and create groups like the Rosicrucians. And, and so now we have all these different groups around Europe. And instead of what I'm finding with, with everybody we've interviewed, instead of, you know, this was first, second, at least these speculative groups, it seems as though they all kind of surface at the same time and are working and are working together. It's really interesting. And here's what I find incredible about that is, you know, their platform was print. And here we are today almost doing the same thing as brothers around the world. And, and our platform is Zoom. And here we are, we're free right now to really talk about what we want to. I just find that incredibly amazing. Um, I would love to know from you around the end of the 1500s when this came through, what was going on in Scotland? Well, uh, generally speaking, um, not only in Scotland, but in Europe, uh, and, and these, these are simply historical facts, and we can't escape them. Um, um, uh, in, in the 1500s, I mean, we can, tracing the stonemasons, which, uh, as you probably gathered now, I'm extremely interested in, um, uh, we, we can trace, certainly in, in, in terms of organisation, we can trace them back in Scotland to uh, 1475. And we can be very precise because the records um, held here in Scotland show that in that year, um, the stonemasons of Edinburgh, the capital, um, were granted um, what was called a seal of cause. Wow. And that's, uh, that's just a very Scottish way of basically saying they were given a charter and they were given a charter by the city council um, in the year 1475 that um, made them part of the establishment, if you like, um, a fairly minor or junior partner, but a, a partner nevertheless. And what that meant was they had a political voice um, in, the, in the way the city was run. And of course, this is all before the Reformation, so Scotland is is a, a Roman Catholic country. There were um, no real options. Yeah, so no real options available. You know that was that was the faith of the time, and everybody was uh, a Roman Catholic. Otherwise, uh, I mean, the consequences could be quite severe if you deviated too far away from from that way of looking at the world. But the the, the point here is that. Um, in exchange for um, the privilege of having um, a voice on the city council, the way the city was run, um, they also had responsibilities. And these responsibilities and privileges are all spelt out um, in this thing called the seal of cause. 
and this is the seal of cause of, of the stonemasons. And um, the privileges, I say, were essentially political. Um, uh, there was also um, the fact that you know they they had they were now accepted as as a legitimate um, outfit. They were part of the establishment, so there was um, quite a lot of kudos to be gained from um, becoming uh, recognised by the city authorities. But it's it's the responsibilities that I find that are particularly interesting. Uh, for example, they became. Uh, responsible for the moral education of their members. So we can begin to see some very early um, ideas that later uh, also uh, are manifest in, in the early lodges. Wow. But for me, uh, quite in, what is quite interesting is that um, because this is the faith um, is um, the Catholic faith, they are given religious responsibilities also, just like every other trade. So in that sense, they're, they're not completely different. They are given um, some responsibilities. And the, resp the main religious responsibility that they were given was um, staging mystery plays, um, yes. which were on, on All Saints Day, uh, typically. Um, and you know, they, they were given a piece of scripture to reenact in the streets as a as part of a parade and all the other trades um you know bakers or, or shoemakers or whatever they were all doing the same thing in this parade but interestingly enough um their practical responsibility that they were given was um to look after the isle of saint john the evangelist so wow. the church say that as part of the deal for you getting this seal of cause, the part of the deal is that you will now be responsible for the Isle of St. John the Evangelist in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. You will um, make sure that the, um, the Isle um, is supplied with uh, candle wax because obviously um, candle had to be kept, candles had to be kept burning throughout. They were responsible for pay, paying the priest, um, who, who was responsible for spiritually responsible for that aisle. Um, uh, they had to pay him for the saying of mass um, for deceased um, stonemasons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here we have the first reference to one of the Saint Johns um, yes. in an official document, albeit it's it's not a document written by the Masons, but it's about the Masons. Um, and they are given this Isle of St. John the Evangelist to look after. Now, um, as far as we can see, the church isn't as ascribing any particular um, idea that this had to be that saint for the stonemasons. In other words, it wasn't that there was any kind of special attribute of St. John the Evangelist that applied to the stonemasons. It looks like that was the first vacant aisle that the church had <laughs> to give to them, to look after, you know. Um, but that's why, interestingly enough, St. John the Baptist doesn't feature in Scottish Freemasonry. Um, St. John the Baptist is irrelevant in Scotland. Um, it's St. John the Evangelist. Um, only, one Saint John, only one patron saint um, is all that's needed, not two. And, uh, and, and so that's why in Scotland, we end up with St. John the Evangelist as our patron saint. 
Um, and interestingly enough, um, that's why to this day, um, most installations, uh, Scottish Masonic installations, take place as near to as, as possible, uh, and, and the older lodges in particular, on the exact date, which is the 27th of December. Now, you can see why St. John the Baptist suddenly becomes an attractive patron saint, albeit um, uh, you know, almost two and a half centuries later, um, because St. John the Baptist Day, the 24th of June, well, which, which day are you going to choose? Yeah. Uh, 27th yeah. of December, when it's cold, dark, wet, miserable, <laughs> or are you going to choose the 24th of June? And we're know? right here today. We're on the date today. <laughs> Synchronicity. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, so it's, it's only the, the perverse Scots that would deny St. John the Baptist and have St. <laughs> John the Evangelist as their patron saint. So, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things that you can glean from going way back into the old records. And that's, that's just one a typical example of many that uh, you come across by just doing that kind of research, you know. That's incredible. Oh, man. That, I just thought about that today. I was Jamie Lamb, uh, one of our brothers, posted Summer Solstice this morning. And I was like, oh, wow, this is just this is this is pretty amazing. Um, uh, Rubens uh, has a question for you. Go ahead and jump in there. Hi, first of all, how are you doing today, Rubens? Yeah, pretty fine. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Bob, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. I remember the last time I saw you personally was when you was in Rio about a year ago. Thank you oh, so yeah. much for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but a question. Uh, I understand that Freemasonry uh, as a repository of different traditions like uh, Christian Judaism, al alchemy, Rosicrucianism, Hermetism, Templarism, Templarism, or whatever. Uh, but when the steward arrived in France, it seems Freemasonry was mixed kind of with Martinism and later with Theosophy. Um, well, at least this is my interpretation as a Brazilian Freemason. Um, because mainly of the Scotch Rite in Brazil is very esoteric down here. And once uh, our Freemasonry is derived from France and Portuguese Freemasonry, much closer maybe to Elifas Levi occultism. Um, but where is the limit that we can separate what is or not Freemasonry? Or is this so blurred that this would be a tough, tough task? What, what's your opinion on it? Thanks. Yeah, um, it, that's a very good question, but also a very difficult one. Um, and uh, part of the problem is that uh, every, every, you know, every period um, uh, has an effect on Freemasonry. So I will give you one very quick example. Um, when Napoleon invaded and conquered Egypt, um, uh, you know, th this mania for all things Egyptian um, also impacted on Freemasonry. And you can go, certainly uh, in Europe, for sure, um, but certain parts of the United States, um, there are Masonic temples that are di direct, direct decorated, um, and almost exact copies of various uh, Egyptian temples. Now, that, that originates almost certainly because of the incredible interest in uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs and all the rest of it um, 
during the very early part of the 19th century, not because um, uh, that kind of ancient Egyptian um, religion um, or symbolism um, had anything to do directly with Freemasonry, but Freemasons who were also interested in ancient Egypt tr transmitted um, that their passion for uh, Egypt, all things Egyptian into the craft. Whereas before, and we can see this particularly in places like France, before Napoleon started bringing back all these Egyptian artifacts to France, there is nothing of that nature um, within uh, Freemasonry. So trying to separate um, the various things that have impacted Freemasonry is very difficult. And that's why um, historians uh, like myself will go back as far as possible um, to the Masonic records and then try and work out when the other influences are added to it. And that's the only way that we can begin to make sense of all these other strands, if you like. And dare I say, I think because um, of the written records here in Scotland, we can get uh, we can go back to a time when Freemasonry is uncontaminated, if that's the right word. It's not influenced, certainly not influenced as much as what, as what would come along later, uh, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and so we, we get to a very pure um, beginning. And that's why these... The, the original stonemasons' rituals, um, uh, which the, the oldest of which is from 1696, and others very close to that date. So you'll notice again these rituals um, exist um, prior to uh, 1717, and it is only after 1717 that lots of other elements begin to be added into Freemasonry. Now, the problem you've got with things like Rosicrucianism is that that, and there's a lot of doubt about this, there's a lot of doubt about whether Rosicrucians as an organization ever existed at all. Okay, but put that to one side. If it did exist, then it predates um, the existence of all these Scottish Masonic records. And so we know what was written about the Rosicrucian period um, at the time it was um, very much in vogue in Europe. And we know what they were supposed to be doing. Then we can look at the Freemasons rituals here in Scotland and we can see there is no Rosicrucian influence on those very early rituals, but there is very definitely an, an, an influence on them much later. So creating that kind of timeline is very, very important, but it's not straightforward as you, as you can imagine. Um, the Jacobite um, connection um, after Bonnie Prince Charlie fails to retake the Scottish throne or the British throne, they go off, to, to, they go off into exile um, at Saint-Germain, just outside Paris, and that probably, and I don't know just exactly how much research has been done on this, but that could well have been where the Scottish Rite began to be thought about and then eventually uh, uh, comes around. Now, interestingly enough, 
the Scottish Rite didn't exist in Scotland until the, um, the 1850s here. So you can see by creating this timeline, you <laughs> can incredible. begin to see when certain things arrive and where, when the influence was, you know. So, sorry, a very long answer to a short question. That was wonderful. <laughs> hey, Briggs. Yes, Francis. Brother Bob, I'm going to throw two questions at you. Um, okay. Since you've been talking about the upheaval and the changes of things, um, I'm currently reading uh, about the Unlawful Societies Act as one piece and talking about how Freemasonry has changed. And it's very interesting for me to see that we as a society have changed repeatedly, uh, going back to the different pieces. And I was wondering, because you were talking about pure Freemasonry versus, you know, after 1717, did, did the Unlawful Societies Act, number one, affect uh, Scotland in any way, shape, or form, since it was uh, that that around that time when England and Britain itself had kind of I'll, I'll use the word loosely united. Um, that's my first question: Is do you did it really? Did the Unlawful Societies Act and some of the other things affect yep. Scottish masonry? Yeah. Second, my second question is, and these guys know what's coming. Uh, you were talking earlier about how reading something kind of piques your interest and it takes you on another path. Um, yeah. I uh, started off studying Celtic history because of my background. And I found it very interesting that under Anderson's constitutions, they mentioned the Celtic people. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how Celtic society, uh, you mentioned the Druids, which we all know is something make-believe in that aspect of it. I'm not talking about historically, but the society itself. How do you, do you think that there is a connection, because I found quite a few coincidences in Freemasonry um, being affected by, quote, traditional Celtic culture? Okay, well let, let's uh, let's de let's deal with the first the first question first, and we can deal that deal with that very quickly um, in the sense that yes, it had a it had a huge impact here um, in Scotland and uh, indeed the rest of the United Kingdom, um, and in essence, um, what this the, the the Secret Societies Act, I'm not sure if that's the exact title. The other one there was two principal uh, laws. The other one was the Unlawful Oaths Act, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, these laws were brought in as a reaction um, to the French Revolution from, of 1789, where um, you know, the aristocrats lost their heads to Madame Guillotine. And uh, the British government was very fearful that that French Revolution could be exported to Britain. Um, and so... Um, they had no way of knowing, the government had no way of knowing whether any of these revolutionary groups actually existed um, in, in, in Britain. And so they took a very broad brush approach and they basically banned any organization that required um, people to take oaths um, of secrecy. And that meant 
not only Freemasons, but all sorts of other organizations um, were banned. Anyone, any organization that uh, um, uh, met in secret, uh, in private, um, that wasn't open to the public, um, was under suspicion. So it had a big impact. The effect, um, the unintentional uh, consequence um, for uh, Freemasons, um, certainly the Masonic organization, was that it gave the Grand Lodges in Britain um, a hugely powerful um, weapon, um, for want of a better word, or a, very, a, 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 hu a hugely powerful instrument um, to use to keep um, lodges under control. And that very, very simply was because these laws required um, the Grand Lodges to vouch for every daughter lodge as being a lawful, respectable, loyal um, lodge that was not a danger to the state. And of course, Grand Lodges suddenly realized, well, if we're going to vouch for you as being a legitimate Masonic lodge, um, you're going to now do what we tell you, otherwise the government will close you down. And so it had a huge impact um, on, on uh, lodges here uh, in Britain, where they had to conform um, pretty much to what Grand Lodges want, wanted them to do. And of course, like any bureaucracy, a lot of that was increasing uh, standardization of a variety of things, ritual and all that kind of stuff. It also meant that many of the ceremonies, um, other than the three degrees, were also banned um, from being performed um, uh, in, in Masonic lodges. And that's why a lot of these other orders appear after that, because lodges could no longer perform the ceremonies. And it was um, essentially other grand lodges were formed um, to look after them. Um, and so it has a, a, a huge impact um, on Freemasonry, which tended to be replicated across the world without the, the, the force of law behind that. But it was a, a pattern that was followed. Now, as to, the, as to Celtic influence, um, historians will tell you, and it's a very, very famous phrase, you've probably heard it many times, but um, uh, correlation is not causation. So although you can see similarities between something that's happening in one group and the similarities also exist in another group, doesn't mean to say that there's any connection at all. All you can say, without going any further than that, is that there are similarities. It doesn't mean to say that they are, are derived from the same causes. Now, the problem with the Celtic um, uh, culture is that very, very little of it is written down. And so we have a major problem in the first place of taking an unwritten culture and comparing it to a written culture that is Freemasonry. And so there's there. In, in essence, is a big problem. And what I think you will typically find is that um, the, bits, the bits that we don't discuss, in this case, the Celtic culture, the bits that we don't discuss um, are, are not, not examined and are not compared to Freemasonry because there is no similarity. Um, so this is what a historian will call cherry picking the evidence. You 
cherry pick the bits that seem to fit um, what you're studying. But you can't do that. You've got to, if you're going to compare Celtic culture with Freemasonry, you've got to compare the entire Celtic culture with Freemasonry, not just the bits that appear to be similar. And this also applies to comparisons with other groups, uh, be it the Gnostics or, or, or um, the Rosicrucians or whatever. Um, so it, it's a very, very interesting subject, but it is fraught with danger, shall we say. Another Thank long for answer for you. Sorry. Oh, that was awesome. Thank you for those questions, Francis. We've got time for, uh, let's see, we got 10, we got 1056. Uh, we usually end on the hour. We got time for one more guys. One more. If anybody wants to jump in. Doesn't look like it. Well, brother Bob, my goodness, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to watch like our, like all of our guests, Cosmo, I'm going to have yeah. to go back on this episode and watch it like 20 times. You dropped <laughs> some major uh, gold nuggets for us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll be spending all week this week uh, going through it. Where can everybody uh, find your books? Um, and I know you lately, you've been doing some incredible um uh, video blogs that I've been watching as well that have been been fantastic. Where can people get uh, that information? Um, okay, I've just put it in the chat room. Oh, um, great. I, 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 I should have come prepared with actual links for you, but I'm so such a disorganized researcher. <laughs> that I, I, didn't, I, I didn't think about that. Um, if you go onto YouTube and, and, and search under my name, I think you'll get a variety of different uh, talks um, under my name. Uh, I can always send them on to, uh, I'll send them on to you guys and you can distribute them as, as you wish. I'll try and find them. But at the moment, that would be the quickest way okay. um, to, 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 to find the talks online. Um, as to my books, well, unfortunately, the problem with this pandemic is that a lot of the, a lot of um, businesses are simply closed. Um, and, and uh, you know, you can't, I mean, for example, the Grand Lodge of Scotland um, shop, um, the online shop, has a variety of these books available. But um, although you can still place orders, the orders won't be processed until the staff uh, get back to work. So uh, you can do that. Um, if you don't mind secondhand copies, um, I, I use uh, Ab Abbey Books, A-B-E or Abe Books, on the second-hand market, they come up with um, things um, uh, quite often. Don't don't pay ridiculously uh, high prices, by the way, because these are fairly recent books and they shouldn't command a very high price for a second-hand copy or a, a used copy. Um, but uh, other books, um, uh, not so much in the States, unfortunately, but Amazon.co.uk has got a few of those books also online. Uh, probably the most popular ones that cr is cracking, cracking the Freemasons Code, which is a paperback book that seems to be quite popular. So Amazon.co.uk and the Grand Lodge of Scotland online shop would be my my first stops, looking for that kind of stuff. Wonderful. Maybe in the future we'll see a second Cagliostro book. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we need to talk to Pip about that. Yeah. That would be that would be wonderful. Uh, Cosmo, do you have anything? 
Well, as, as always, uh, Bob, um, you know, talking to you, it's, uh, it's always an inspiration. You know, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm just about finished with my book. Um, I was supposed to publish it uh, this month, but I'm going to hold off until um, probably the end of July, just because, you know, again, distribution, you know, trying to get it out there, trying to get it printed and out. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to do nowadays with, the, with everything being closed down. You know, even here in, in the U.S., you know, we're having a hard time getting things across, so yeah yeah well i mean all all good things come to those who wait so yes make sure that make sure you send me the details when when it when it's uh we'll when it's available we'll do and again uh you know any any what would you like to leave us with today uh give us a give us uh something that i know when i was there you know you kind of opened my mind a little bit but uh, tell us something that you think that we should all be thinking about to inspire us to, to, to move forward in these, t- in these tough times? Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, a couple of little points. I mean, for example, here we are um, uh, using Zoom from one side of the world to the other. Yes. If, if nothing else, that proves to me that Freemasonry is adaptable um, in, in difficult circumstances the things that we're going to have to think about, Freemasonry is uh, one of these interactive sports. So you can't, you can't really be a Freemason on your own. Um, it only really works um, as a group dynamic. So um, at this particular point in time, it may be uh, worthwhile trying to give some thought to how we get back to our um, Masonic meetings uh, once this pandemic's over. I don't know whether we've given, uh, as, as Masons, whether we've given any thought to how we put this thing all back together again um, once it's all over. And so perhaps we should be thinking about that. But as a researcher, I think you've got to, what you've got to realize is no matter who tells you that um, there's nothing left to discover about Freemasonry, it's all been done, it's all been written about, well, that's just simply so much nonsense. There's always stuff to learn, so yes. don't give up. There's always stuff to uncover. There's also always stuff that's going to um, make interesting, interesting reading and interesting research. Well, that's wonderful. That's something we all have in common. And again, uh, brother uh, Bob, thank you so much for for joining us today. It was wonderful. I'm going to have to go back. Uh, we want to thank our guests on Facebook and especially our guests today uh, live and the phenomenal questions. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll have actually Martin Falks on in a few weeks, and he'll be discussing the memory palaces and Bruno. So that's going to lead right into that. So that's <laughs> going to be that's going to be really cool. It'd be great to have you on, Bob, as well. That would be fantastic. Okay. Well, I hope yeah. you guys do well in uh, uh, Scotland, Cosmo. Um, again, congratulations on the uh, restaurant that's <laughs> coming up. Uh, it's going to be phenomenal in your book as well. I want to say uh, best wishes to everybody out there. This has been an unknown philosophers. And again, um, I'm just going to, I know we just did this, but Bob, just give us maybe a couple more words of encouragement and we'll be out. And uh, I wish you well. Okay. Well, to you guys in, in Arizona, I'll tell you, I went, I went to Arizona once in July. And I'll never be back. I'll never be back in Arizona in July ever, ever again. I mean, I'm from Scotland, for goodness sake. We're melting. Um, 
I mean, that was hotter than hell, you know. Um, I've never experienced, never, never experienced heat like that. Um, but as you say out there, it's a dry heat. Yeah. Um, so, it, and and the beauty of that, you know, that that example, if you like, the beauty of it is, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Freemasonry can survive from the bitterest cold to the hotter than hell heat. And yes. so, you know, Freemasons, yeah, you know, keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. It's worth it.